I'm not going to do a lyric tonight. Um, we had I had planned to follow up the proof rock poem with a poem from Browning by Browning um, called uh, in the Spanish cloister. I can't remember the. And I had it ready, but um, Suzanne couldn't come. She she may be here shortly. I'm not sure if she's if he's going to finish in time. But anyway, there wasn't time to print it off, so we'll skip the lyric. Okay. The reason for it is it's really lovely. It's not like it's. I like Browning. It's a what he does is amazing. But he's he's one of the early or proximate closest precursors for Eliot in. Prufrock because in a number of his lyrics he's dealing with people who are not good people and we're getting a lyric from these characters and this particular one is really good because it's a monk it's a friar and he's living with a group of monks and it's 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 really lovely because there's nothing he says or nothing because he's not saying anything he's thinking to himself so we're we're overhearing his thoughts there's nothing that he thinks that isn't full of envy and hatred and spite and um, I wish he'd go water the flowers. Um, um, we just read a text from Matthew or you know those sorts of things and could have spent our time doing. I mean, so you you have you wonder sometimes if those aren't the sorts of things that go on in a priest's head. <laughs> truly, truly, um, because he's a human being and he's got sins like the rest of us. But anyway, it's a lyric. It's a lyric, but it's not the kind of love lyric that we've been concentrating on. So it's a lot like Prufrock, and um, it's one of the poems that clearly had to inspire Eliot in his work, so. But we'll do it next week. Um, and there, the the handouts, I think it's the... From last week. Yeah, there's, no, there's nothing new. I think it's the T.S. Eliot poem and I think maybe two tips. What's there, Karen? Two poems? Eliot's both? The Hollow Men? The Hollow Men. Yep. Yeah, they're both Eliot. So. Thanks. Thanks. Mark, good to see you. Wouldn't be right starting without you. Let's start. Any, any, any prayer request? We've got blessing. Good. My youngest daughter made dean's list last semester. She what? Made the dean's list for last semester. But she's surprising, full of surprises for you. No, this is my youngest. Oh, this another one. one that hasn't gone off the rails. The and my older one said she got well, accepted, accepted for the school up there where she's living. So that's this, a the older one was the one that you were Worry surprised about. about because she wanted to go to mass. So, yes? No. No, is this another no, person? Nobody else's. No. <laughs> but we, we are. Uh... <laughs> we got blessings and we might as well share. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> How old is she? 18. The Dean's List? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good for her. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Chester, can you close that? Sorry, I should have asked earlier. Thanks. 
Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us. Um, we will miss Mass. Um, not the same, starting days without you. Um, um, but thank you for your presence. Um, you are always here, even if we don't see you. Um, special prayers for Christopher and Kayla, for the neighbors across the street who just lost their mother, um, for Debbie and her husband. Her husband's just gone into the hospital. These are friends, sorry. Um, and um, who looks like he may not last the week. Um, so watch over them, all of them, please. Um, um, let those who are surviving deaths um, be strengthened in their f faith, particularly in their solitude. Hard to imagine. Um, can't be easy to have somebody and then be alone. So console them, let them know your presence, and find a strength in you. Um, we offer thanksgiving um, for um, Chester and Valerie's daughter for making the Dean list. Great thing, great thing. Help her to keep it up, to take a, take a pleasure in it. Um, um, a, a genuine pleasure, it's not something a lot of people do. Um, I want to offer a special thanksgiving, I think for probably all of us, but I know um, certainly for myself, for Father Flynn's uh, great gift to us. Um, he's done everything he could to bring you to us, to bring us to you. Um, watch over him, protect him. Um, one of the, I think one of the reasons he was such a gift to us is he was so obedient in everything he did, cheerful in receiving the news. There was no grumbling. Um, he has a soldier's heart. Um, help all of us who've been here, um, who are grateful for the gifts that he's been to us, to make that same obedience real in our own lives. Um, to cut down on the grumbling and complaining and um, be cheerful with the difficulties um, make his spirit living here now that he's gone um, let your blessings go with him um, help him in all the work that he's going to do at um, Antsedon we offer these prayers um, thanksgiving gladness and um, in hope for those who are suffering in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, just a, a quick review, or try to be quick. It's, I, I'm, we'll see. We'll see. Um, <laughs> Last week, I introduced the notion of the Trinity in the Commedia because um, it's so easy to overlook. You know, you can read the story and get so caught up in the in the story itself. Um, hell and Purgatory are both somewhat adventure stories. Paradiso is going to present a problem to everybody. It's far more intellectual, far more intellectual, far more explicitly theological. Everything that goes on in the Inferno and Purgatory is, is um, 
it's like what goes on in life. It's familiar. We know sins. We know our efforts to put them away. So both of those places don't present many problems. Paradiso will. It's very, very intellectual. It, it, it's going to take some work to stay with it. Um, but when we read through these canticles, the Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso, we can read them and not give a thought to the Trinity. And yet, it's everywhere around. Which, which to me is, the fact that that's so is, in one sense, a sign of Dante's brilliance. That he could... Wow, look at you. Hi, Tracy. Do you need some help? Sure. Here. God. Wow, are you kidding me? My neighbor made it. Save, save one of these for me. You all, we should probably take a break here. <laughs> well, if, if you see this, you'll understand why. You, you, let's take a, let's take a few minute break. Everybody, you might want to come over and look at that because that, that, that looks good. Yo, it's, it's really good looking cake. Um, <laughs> a sign of Dante's brilliance is the fact that we're not even aware of it, um, which is a, in some ways a reflection of how, how real Dante is, that he could tell a story and do it in such a way that we're not even aware of something because that's the way it is in life, exactly that way. You know, the first time I read The, uh, um, the Wind Hover or Supernatural Love, the four-year-old girl, you know, you go through those poems and you don't even see much, but once you look at them closely, you realize there's so much more going on than we see. So it is with Dante. The Trinity, there, there's nothing in existence that doesn't reflect the Trinity in some ways if, if we had eyes to see it. So I, I want to go back to this briefly and pick it up because I want to underscore it for this reason that I just gave. We, we can read through it and not even realize that it's there, but when we start looking more closely, we find it's everywhere, okay? So, some of the obvious ways in which the Trinity is present. There's three canticles. Right. Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. Each one of the canticles is divided into three sections. You see that in the Inferno pretty clearly. Um, and, Remember the, the three levels of the descent into the center of hell, the incontinent, the violent, and the fraudulent. Um, you'll see the same kind of Trinitarian division um, in the Purgatorio and the Paradiso. Um, there are figures who are parodies of the Trinity. Cerberus is one that comes to mind. Satan himself at the end will make it explicit because he'll have three heads. He'll be eating three figures. Um, so, there are a number of figures that we meet in the journey that remind us that there's something Trinitarian to our nature. Remember, I, I said that one of the most basic and one of the more important ones for St. Thomas when he's talking about it um, is this. That each one of us, by the way, everything in, everything in nature shares this Trinitarian form. This is a okay. Every one of us is, every one of us knows, every one of us loves. If we didn't exist, if we didn't have being, we couldn't know or love, right? 
and it's hard to love what we don't know. Fair. We tend to love. Love means directing our desires towards a good. How can we love it if we don't know it? Okay, so all these things are absolutely interrelated. <coughs> the same um, tripartite division structure exists in every single thing in the world. St. Thomas says everything that's good is known by its mode, its form, and its order. I'm not going to go into this because it's a little bit abstract, but each thing is disposed material in a certain way. It has a form, an action to do something, and it has an order to it. Every, everything, a starfish, um, a, um, a tree, a human being, everything. To the extent that it's good, that it is, that it's good, whatever it is is good, it has those three qualities. Everything in nature is situated in being, it is, it knows and it loves. Okay, now that's going to sound absurd, but hold on. I did this before, I think with all of you. Remember in Plato there were three parts of the soul, reason, um, spiritedness, and appetites. Those are the three faculties of the soul. It's tripartite, it's Trinitarian. Everything, everything in nature, a sunflower, a wolf, a bear, a human, a tree, um, has what Thomas would call an appetite. It has something like an appetite that directs it towards the good. So, for example, a sunflower, which we think of as a, a vegetate, it's, um, it's not a human, as the sun moves across the sky, it moves with the sun. Why? Because it longs for that light. Without it, it can't live. That's true of everything in creation. I'm just taking an obvious example. So it has an appetite. Um, it, um, it's directed towards something. It doesn't have a power of reason. But St. Thomas argues, I gave you all that, that question, because I think it's one of the most extraordinary questions in the Summa in which he says, in man, man has reason and free will, um, so he can make a choice and concerning whatever he wants to do and whatever he wants to direct his appetites towards. A sunflower doesn't have reason in itself the way a human being does, but it has reason in it insofar as it was made by a creator. So the apprehensive power, the power of reason, doesn't exist in the flower, but it does exist in the creator who made it. So it's present in its structure. Otherwise, it could not move as the sun moves across the sky. It's not using reason. But that reason is imparted to the very being of that thing so that it can do what's good for it. It can follow the sun. Okay? I know that's abstract, but St. Thomas would, would make that argument. So he would say, God is a God of love. And everything in creation is, this is St. Thomas, this is really true. St. Thomas said everything in creation is moved by love. Modern scientists would say force or energy. They would quantify it. But if he's a God of love and he made these things, he imparts to them this, this love. So the appetite 
in the sunflower is towards its own good. You got that from the apprehensive power of the, of the creator who made it. So there's still a Trinitarian structure in everything in re reality, even if we don't see it. Science has changed that all because it's quantified everything. It certainly is not going to say the universe is, is expressive of love everywhere. They'd say you're, <laughs> there's something wrong with you. Um, St. Francis believed that whether he could articulate the principles or not, because you know that he went around the world going, brother sun, sister moon. He, he was aware of this affinity between himself as a human being and everything else in nature. He was one with everything in nature, because there is that affinity. In the modern mind, we've separated ourselves from nature. We look at it as a thing. We've quantified it. So that notion has dropped out. Not for Thomas. Okay. So this notion of the Trinity, it, it seems, I'm sure it seems awfully abstract, but at least for Thomas and the medi medieval people, it would not have been. They would have been far more comfortable with that than we are today. They would have felt it. They would have believed it. They could have made an argument for it. Today, how many Catholics could you know, make that argument? It's just, it's not a part of our education. Um, so, the, the Trinitarian structure is present everywhere in the Commedia. It's most present, most visibly present, in an explicit, obvious way in the rhyme scheme, the Terzarima. And we've talked about it. The interesting thing about that Terzarima, remember ABA, BCB, CDE, is it's exactly the same and it's always moving. And in a paradoxical way, that's a perfect expression of God. The still point that, I'm, that I want to get to. That beautiful Terzarima, Terzarima that we, we hear a rhyme, but it's always moving us forward. It's moving us towards something. Where is that order, that ringing, that harmony taking us? Through hell, up purgatory, to God. There's this beauty at work in us. It's musical. Sadly, our translation won't give us that. I mean, you have to read the Italian to give it, but, but it's there. Okay. Now, let me step aside and bring in another argument here in order to come back to the still point a little bit more directly. Um, there's two, there's five arguments that Thomas makes for the existence of God in the opening of the Summa Theologica. Two of the most, I think two of the easiest and the most accessible are um, the argument from contingency and the argument from motion. Those are two of the five proofs that he offers. The argument from contingency is basically this. Everything in nature, and by the way, this is, this is probably the most, the simplest, most definitive definition of nature that you'll ever hear, but it's true. One, one definition of nature is motion. Everything's moving. Everything's in movement. Every physicist would agree with that. Okay? Um, everything in nature is contingent because it depends on something else for whatever it does. That's everything. If you wanted to explain how a cloud came into existence, you'd have to look at those factors dealing with the Earth's heat or the temperature in the sky or the winds so that in order to explain that you'd have to go to other things and in order to explain those things you'd have to go to other things that's true of everything in the world okay there's nothing that doesn't fall into that category if that's so thomas says then 
um, you're faced with an infinite regress and no explanation because even, even if you say these are the factors that produce this cloud or this storm or a tsunami or and whatever, whatever it is, the crumbling of a building, the crashing of a car, it doesn't matter. Getting pregnant, um, there's always a previous cause. The problem with contingency is if you go back to those causes, they imply other causes before that. So you can go on in an infinite regress. So that in order to come to a real explanation, you have to go to something that in itself is not contingent. That thing is what we call God. Because nothing caused him. He's uncreated. He's complete in himself. He didn't need to create the universe. Okay. Argument from motion it takes the same form. You can explain the movement of one thing by something that put it in movement. Hit a, hit a cue ball, it hits another, and you can hit three or four to pocket a ball. You know, whatever you're going to do, bounce a ball, shoot a ball in a basket. Um, if you throw a ball against a wall, it bounces back. Whatever motion that we're talking about, something else had to put it in motion. If you're looking for an explanation, you're facing the same problem. If you keep turning to those things, you have to look to something before them, because each one was produced by something before that. So in order to avoid that infinite regress again, which means there's no explanation, you have to go back to a first mover that in himself is unmoved. That food first un unmoved mover is God. Because he's complete in himself, his motion is complete. In fact, one of the ways of describing God is that um, he's, he's still. There is in God no desire. None. Desire means lacking of something. There's nothing lacking in God. We desire things because we want something. We don't have it. God is love. He is complete goodness. What is there to love outside of him? He, there's not, he doesn't need anything. He's complete. Infinite, complete, immutable. So those are two of the, of the arguments for the existence of God. Now, I'm just giving them because I want to go to this notion of a still point because a still point deals with the idea of motion. Okay? Now, I want to quickly just read these again. This is where... Um, this is in Boethius. There's five ch chapters in the... I think it's third or fourth, third, middle of third. Boethius, remember, he's in jail because he's been falsely accused of doing something. He's innocent, he's going to be executed. And he's grieving over this question, why good people suffer? Why God would allow that? And why evil people benefit, profit sometimes? Why, why would God allow such a thing? In the fourth and fifth chapters of this book, he's dealing with this notion of what he calls fate. People are fated, they're trapped in something, like the pagans world who believe, the pagans who believe they were destined, that they couldn't escape fate. He deals with fate, and in the final chapter he deals with providence, with what God does with that. Here he's preparing for that argument, and he says, talking about God, the form of the divine substance is such that it does not spread out into outside things. It's not as if there's something already there and God gives his life to it from outside. He created it, he's present in it, even if he's outside of it. For a Christian God, this is so important, Our God, we believe our God is both transcendent and imminent. That's not so for the other religions. God's 
God's involved in everything that goes on in our life. So he's outside, create like an artist, creates a work, he stands outside of it, but he's in it in every line. Every, everything that goes into that reflects him. Same for us. The form of the divine such and such that it does not spread out into outside things or take up into itself anything from them. As Parmenides says of it, like the mass of a sphere well-rounded in all ways, it rotates the moving sphere of the universe while remaining itself unmoved. So God imparts a motion to everything. The ancients called that the first object of his own movement was called um, the prima mobile, mobile. He put that in motion and that prima, the first mover, the prima mobile, set everything else in motion until you get to the earth. And then he says this, everything therefore which comes under fate in modern sciences today we would say everything that's determined. And if you're following the modern sciences you know that almost everything is determined. They don't believe in free, most scientists do not believe in free will, Freud didn't. He believed that all things were determined, that there were these basic things, you could not escape them. They're going to play out in any case. Everything, therefore, which comes under fate is also subject to providence, to which fate itself is subject. But certain things which come under providence are above the chain of fate. These are things which rise above the order of things ruled over by fate in virtue of the stability of their position, close to the supreme Godhead. Try to picture a saint. If everybody is scrambling to keep up if the Joneses and the Smiths and they don't want to lack anything that they have, constantly buying, constantly working to have enough money, you know that they're on um, a treadmill, that they just cannot stop. Uh, God. Imagine waking up in the morning and finding that you have no television, no computer, and no phone, <laughs> and then wrestle with the notion of addiction. <laughs> Ask yourself how well you do. I, I'm assuming everybody knows the humor of this because we become so dependent on these things that when we don't have them, it's like our life disappears. That that's a frightening thing for me personally. But we did have we do have heat. Yeah. Last year, last year we did for a while. Those are things which rise above because they're closer to the center. The inmost one comes closest to the simplicity of the center, while forming itself a kind of center for those set outside of it. Now remember, in the Ptolemaic universe, um, we our our scheme of it was that all these planets were rotating around the Earth, and they were ordered. Now, somebody, please tell me. Somebody explain to me how chance anything anything like the notion of a Big Bang could explain that kind of regularity. If things are regular, you can't explain them by chance. There's too much regularity. You can't have that regularity and explain it by chance. Okay, only an intelligent being could could explain that kind of order. Anything that joins itself to the middle circle is brought closer to simplicity and no longer spreads out widely. In the same way, whatever moves any distance from the primary intelligence becomes enmeshed in every stronger chains of fate, and everything is freer from the fate the closer it seeks to the center of things. Imagine somebody on drugs, I mean, to make the worst case, or pornography. Um, is that person capable how capable is that person of acting with any kind, any degree, any measure of freedom? To step away from what has such a powerful hold on him, 
that he gave it by desiring it so much. The closer you get to the center, the closer you get to rest. The more centered we are in God, the less influenced we are by these other things. They don't have the hold on us. And if it cleaves to the steadfast mind of God, it's free from movement and so escapes the necessity imposed by fate. All the determinisms in us. Because they're real. There are lots of things in us that are determined. They're part of our nature. Um, and if it cleaves to the steadfast mind of God, it's free from movement and so escapes the necessity imposed by fate. The relationship between the ever-changing course of fate and the stable simplicity of providence is like that between reasoning and understanding. Reasoning is the mind in motion, yes? If this, then this, then this, then this. If all of that's so, then this. Aha, I see. That's the conclusion. Right? We don't reason to keep on going with reason or we'd go nuts. We reason to come to a conclusion to say, that's so. This chair is here, emphatically. When I go to sit down, I'm not going to sit down in air and fall on my rear. You know, it will, it, will, it will catch me. I can say that with absolute confidence. So reasoning is motion, but the end of that motion is rest and understanding. To say, I see all of us have those moments where we go, ah, I see. I'm, I'm assuming it's like a, I mean, it, how do you explain that except like a rest? It's like a peace that you come to and say, yes, it's so. All the struggling for a moment is relieved. Um, the difference between um, reasoning and understanding, between that which is coming into being and that which is. A young child comes into being. He grows up, hopefully, to, to reach a point where He's an adult. Some of the struggles that he took on will fade. And hopefully that will go on until his last days when he's closer to a rest. I mean, let's say, in, in for us in this community, I'm saying, it's the, it's the rest that we come to, I hope, when we make those preparations to get ourselves ready for God and our mind quiets. We want to make those efforts because we know the next step is we're not going to be around. Those struggles are over. That veil of tears is past. Between that which is coming into being, that which is between time and eternity, or between the moving circle and the still point at its center. Okay? Those of you who were here last year when we did the four quartets know that that was the major image of every one of the quartets. Now let me go there right now. Um, this is going to be a review for some of you, but just be patient for a second because the, the conclusion of this for me is astounding. I hope it is for you, but... This is Elliot in Burt Norton. Those of you who did the quartets will, will remember. It'll sound familiar to you. Those of you who are not, just listen. <clears throat> this is Burt Norton. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless neither from nor towards at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity. Notice the difference. This is not fixity. It's a still point. He's making an important distinction here. Um, and do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. 
and I cannot say how long for that's to place it in time. One of the examples I remember giving when we, were, when we first took up the quartets is, when we take the Eucharist, I mean, it, if we take it as a matter of faith, I mean, we, that's a serious thing for us. When we take the Eucharist and walk outside the church, where are we? And I'm saying that in truth. Because on one level, we all know that we're in a parking lot, ready to get to the car and go home. Geographically, we can map that physically, materially in space. But if you take the Eucharist, our belief is that we are with God in his kingdom at that moment. Yeah? You take Christ in you, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're a part of his kingdom. We're with him in hopefully doing whatever it is he's asking us to do. If that's the case, then where's the meeting point between those two things? We're in a lot, a church part a lot. We've just taken the Eucharist. Who can explain? And, I, and I, I, I'm going to say this dogmatically. It's my belief that, let's say there's 20 of us taking the Eucharist, that when the 20 of us go outside and the Eucharist is in each one of us, each one of us is going to be somewhere different. Whatever Christ means to that individual person, can we describe it? Can you get it down on paper? It would be different. Is it here or there? I cannot say how long, for that's the place and in time. I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where. In fact, let me put, if, that, if I'm being too abstract here, let me put it this way. That when we do that, even if we're in the parking lot going home, part of us is involved in a mystery. Simply. Can we get our head around it? I'm going to say categorically no. I may be pushing too much here. I'm going to say one of the difficulties of the modern world is that we don't make a place, we don't make great a place for mystery in our lives. We want everything to be certain. We want to have control over everything. The over-controlling tendencies us are through the roof. Mm -hmm. We don't live well in mystery. When we go out of a church receiving Christ, where are we? I just want to leave that. It's an indefinite thing, okay? Words move, music moves, only in time, but that which is only living can only die. Words after speech reach into the silence. Only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness, as a Chinese jar still moves perpetually in its stillness. Not the stillness of the violin while the note lasts, not that only, but the coexistence or say that the end precedes the beginning and the end and the beginning were always there. Alpha and Omega. He was there before. He was our beginning. He is our end. Which means he is everywhere present whether we see him or not. Before the beginning and after the end and all is always now. He's always there. The detail of the pattern is movement as in the figure of the ten stairs. Desire itself is movement not in itself desirable. If what we want is desire, and that's what we're desiring, we're on that track again, endless. If, if, if our ultimate end isn't desire, a rest, St. Augustine, how's that word? My heart is restless until I rest in thee. You know, and, until we are with him, that desire is always wanting more. And only one thing, if our desires are infinite, and they are, they never stop, there's only one thing that will put them to rest. An infinite object. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement, timeless and undesiring, 
except in the aspect of time caught in the form of limitation. And let me put this together, because that's a lot. So looking back at the lines that I just read you, the key image by which all motion is to be grasped is the wheel that spins around an unmoving point. The speed of the turning increases the farther the edge gets from the wheel's center. But at its very center, the wheel is motionless. Every physicist would say this. If you look at a geometric, what the physicist would call an, intellect, an intellectual grasp of something, a geometric grasp, grasp of something, the center of that wheel is unmoving. The farther you get away from it, the faster it moves. The, far, the more you move away from the edge, the closer to the center, the more you approach it a condition of motionless, of stillness. The wheel itself moves. Now here's the paradoxes. The wheel itself moves, transports us from and towards, from before to after, right? The wheel moves. It helps us, a car gets from here to there, before, after. But in itself, it's the center, it's unmoving. But at its intellectual or geometric center, it is still, it is both in and outside of time simultaneously. The same with the Chinese vase that moves perpetually in its stillness. The vines and dragons on the vase are full of life and vitality, but the motions of their vigorous energy are caught in the stillness of its form. Even the vase's unmoving curved shape hints at a movement of disparate or far and near edges spinning in balance around a point. If this is the jar and it's spinning, it can be spinning, but it'll look, if it's symmetrical, right, it'll look like it's still, right? right? Um, the, near, the near and closer parts will all remain still while it's moving, even though what's on the, on the image on it is dragons, leaves, everything full of vitality and life. Okay? The ten stairs image simply repeats the principle from another perspective. Stairs appropriately facilitate movement, but in themselves are fixed. If they weren't, they wouldn't work. In this particular case, the stairs may suggest a purgatorial movement, the ongoing penance one undertakes to climb a mountain and attain the rest offered at the top. Remember, 10 is a perfect number, and Eliot was, said it was a 10-stair thing that he was looking at. The last image introduced is the dance, and it's one Eliot will return to again and again. Without the still point, he says, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. Like the other forms, the dance itself hints at a still point. Every jump, now hold on to this, every jump, turn, or spin of a dancer implies an equipoise without which the actions would simply end in a fall or collapse. They would crumple. Yeah? Now think about all those images, because what Elliot's done is this amazing thing. He's taken what a half dozen images in different categories, artifacts, dancers, and showed that there's a still point in every sing implied in every single one of them. Is everybody following me? If you, if you think about this and extend it, if you, um, if you just go out from this, you have to say there's a still point in everything going on in life or we would fly off into space. How in the world do all the planets revolve in the order way in which they do around a sun or our Earth and its place in it? If there wasn't something holding them in place, when you throw a ball against a wall, when you dance, when you jump, if you drop plates, if you 
go through a red light. There are laws in place even if we never see them. So the part of the beauty of this poem is what Eliot's showing us is that there's nothing in life, absolutely nothing, that does not imply a still point. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, um, Fred's not here. Fred and Francis. Fred's a physicist, and he, were, he he's so caught with what Dante's doing with this. He's a physicist, and he says this is what all the he says the physicists have more in common with Dante than you know, because you can with a formula you can explain all these things. So e even if we don't see it, there is nothing in the universe that doesn't imply it, and that means there is nothing in the universe that, in some ways, doesn't reflect God. Okay. Now let me stop for a minute because I want to I want to take up its opposite in hell. But I know that this is really abstract. So if anybody wants to raise him, and, and remember, I'm not a physicist, um, but I'm amazed at what Eliot and and remember I told you when we get to the middle of the uh, towards the end of the Paradiso, Dante's going to go to the Imperium. He's going to look at all the all the heavens circling around the Earth. He's going to see them getting slower and slower and slower and slower because the Earth doesn't move. It's at the center. He's going to look into Beatrice's eyes, who's looking at God, and then he's going to see exactly the opposite, because he's going to see it in spiritual terms. Um, the planets move um, faster and faster as they get to the center, and the, the center is moving so fast, it's standing still. That's his way of showing what, Boethi what he learned from Boethius, that God is at the center of everything, whether we see him or not. We couldn't walk. Even walking implies an equipoise, right? Because if we lose our balance, we're... So everything we do, there's a still point implied, even if we can't see it. So, I know that's abstract, but let me... Any any questions or... You're calling that still point God. It's an image of God, yes. It may or may not be. Okay. Right. We don't know. I do. <laughs> I do, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Come on, which? There's a lot of holes in a lot of those statements. Well, pick out one because we don't have. Okay. Well, just just pick out one. You're reading them. I was thinking that you read another one. I think about it. So I, I, I can't, but it, it's technically when something is spinning, it's not still because it's still spinning. Depends on what space you look at it in. Talk with a physicist, and he'll tell you the opposite. No, it's still there's a point around which it is spinning. Correct, but it, the wheel itself is still spinning. Even if you're standing in a circle. If you look at the center of a record, it's still going around in a circle. Slower, but it's still going around. Now, in one space it's still, but it is still moving. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, everything's moving. We're moving at 24,000 miles an hour right now around the sun. I mean, everything is moving. Yeah, no, I, I'm not contesting that. I'm not arguing. But I, what I am saying is, every physicist would agree with this too. They'd say, geometrically, um, that and Carl. I mean, Carl gave the that was a nice description of it. Um, if if you look at a wheel, you know that at the circumference it's moving faster, and as you move towards the center, it slows down more and more and more until you get to the center. And if that's true. By extrapolation, you have to say that at its very center, it's not moving at all. That's not a whole, in my argument, if all physicists that I know would it's agree not with that. In a direction, but it's still spinning. The center is not. Anyway, let me let me because that's I mean you, you and I. It's like infinite. It's it's the other end of infinite. 
It's not definitely, it's not infinite, but it depends on what's, it's like if you look at a wheel that's moving, it's going this way, it's still moving. The center is not around the center, but the whole thing is still moving. I mean, it depends on what space you look at. We're not, we're not disagreeing on that. I don't see the hole in that, but, so unless you can go to another, I mean, unless you can make clear, oh, let's go on, because we're not disagreeing about that at all. And I, and frankly, I mean, I, let's, let's move forward because physicists, would not disagree, I think, with anything I'm saying. If you look at you, if you've ever read, if you study Euclidean geometry, and you know what a point, those of you who do it know that a point is that which occupies no space. I mean, it, they're, they're in an intellected world, um, and then certain things follow from that. A line has an extension, but doesn't occupy space either, as I remember. Um, here's where I want to go. Um, I think most of us know this. To whatever extent we're caught up in the world, we feel hassled, rushed, pushed, and most of us, I would say, long for something quieter. We, and we know that because we've all had experiences of rest. We've all enjoyed a peace. We know that when we get too caught up, it has an effect on us. If we, we go on retreats for that reason, we try to step away to recover that center. Some people call it being centered, whatever, you know. Hell is the opposite of what I'm talking about. What, what you see in hell is purposeless motion. It will never stop. All these people are moving with their desires and there's no end at all. The de desires, they'll never rest from. So everything in hell is, is, I mean, as we would expect. If heaven is where all motion stops and we rest eternally in love, hell is its opposite. It's just painful suffering, continually going on, being driven by things instead of letting them go and stepping back. So one of the one of the definitions of hell is the opposite of what we're talking about here. Okay. Order versus disorder. Say. Order versus disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hell is restless motion, motion without purpose, never reaching an end or a stillness. Every time we, every character we've seen in hell is caught in the desire that will never be answered, never fulfilled. It's a source of punishment. It's the, it produces the contrapasso, each according to the particular sin. Now, where is this going? We've been talking about the way in which literature very often is mimetic. It imitates something in the world. Um, if, if Dante's right in what he's doing and and what I've been trying to show is that what's amazing about Dante is when he shows the contrapasso, he's showing us the effects of a sin. He's like a good doctor saying, if this is what you're doing, this is its effect. That's the effect that they carry with it eternally. That's what they'll be doing forever. Um, so in some sense, hell is an image of what's present in the city. Always. So in, and that's why so many of the characters keep talking about their sins in terms of a certain sin. Florence, um, Bologna, you know, um, some of the other cities. There's a certain, some of the characters come from certain cities and they use certain words to describe those cities. But I want to talk about Florence now, particularly because remember, Florence is the prototype of America. It is, it is our prototype. It's our, it's our source. It's the commercial regime. And I've su suggested, this is what Dante shows us, that the two motivating factors of the commercial regime are pride and envy. Those are the primary, I want to get ahead, 
I don't want to be left behind. If somebody has something I don't, I'll, be, I'll take a joy in that person losing it. Those are driving forces in America. So I'm, I'm going to give as dark a view right now as I can of our culture, so hold on. A secular consumerist society depends upon a proliferation of means to keep men busy. What drives America is a proliferation of means without ends. Hold on to that. It's a proliferation of means without ends. There, take away God, there's no end. What you're going to do is just proliferate means. Once I get this, then I'll get this and I'll get another, and then I'll get something else. So it keeps us in a state of constantly longing for more. My soul is restless until I rest in thee. Or we're constantly restless, ignoring him. A secular consumer society depends upon a proliferation of means to keep man busy and constantly desiring. When you turn on the tube, what's going on? Constant advertisement saying, buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this. The assumption being, once I buy that, you'll be happy. Once you get this, is there an end to it? No, none. There is no end. And it raises certain problems. But a world in which desires are artificially stimulated in order to be artificially gratified is not simply a world given to exploitation and greed. It's a world inimical to love. Because love implies a rest. You give yourself freely. It's an end in itself. You love that person. You rest in that person, in the love that you have for it. Right? It's a world inimical to love, for love has the nature of a final end. Poetry in this context has a vital role to play. It offers a degree of healing because it allows a brief respite from burdens while it increases our capacity to see and feel at the same time. It can do this because what it offers is a thing whose good or end is in itself. Why do we listen to Bach or music or sing or play the piano? We take a pleasure in that thing itself when we hear that music. Um, so, it's, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, when I, We don't watch a lot of TV, but when we do, I'm so taken by, by two things that I'm struck with. Not only the number of commercials that keep pounding you know, at us that say, get this, get this, get this if you do this. But when I watch, because I tend to be interested in sports events, because I'm, I just grew up in sports and I, I'm getting harder and harder to watch them because I hate the egos in them today and the money. But <laughs> it's, it's almost impossible for me to tune into a sports event without listening to the commentators make excuses for athletes. And enabling goes on all the time. They're constantly making excuses. We, we live in an enabling culture. If you get this, you'll be happy. If you don't get this, protest until you do get it, and then you'll be happy. As if that's going to make everybody happy. It just keeps people in turmoil, constantly striving. We've been talking about this from the beginning. What's the great theme of the Iliad? Booty. So you get all this booty, you're going, to, um, you're going to be satisfied. You never are. So right at the outset of our culture, that's the, one of the dominant themes. So... Um, what Dante is giving us is an image of the underworld, the understructure of the commercial regime. He's showing us something hellish at work in the commercial regime, what drives people, what's put them here in hell. Okay. And here's, here's, the, here's the grave question, it seems to me at least, it uh, forces on us. 
if money is the end of what we're doing, and that's what we're all striving for, to have a career, to have this money, what ha here it goes, what happens to the traditional values? Friendship, fraternal friendship, love. I mean, look at our culture today. This is not a small thing for me. If people are driven by money and careers, that's what has them, that's what they're going for, how capable are they of loving? What happens to traditional values? Abortion, divorces, violence, drugs. I mean, our culture, um, you don't have to look very hard to see the, the worst things about our human nature and what's going on in our culture. And, and, and where can people turn for traditional values? Remember those of you who did Merchant of Venice, that's Shakespeare. Leave, leave that, step outside of that culture because there's no way you can find them there. So what Dante's doing in the 13th century and 1300s is, early 14th century, giving us an image of the modern commercial regime. What we're looking at is hell, in hell, is an aspect of our own culture today. You don't have to look very far to see in our culture the sorts of things that we're experiencing here in hell. Let me stop now. So um, I want to now. I want to go to the to, to the um, to the cantos themselves. But let me stop for a second. Any questions or holes to find in this bar? Go ahead. It's, but it's the way it's always been. Yes. I mean, yes. We, I mean, granted, is it bad yes. now? Maybe is it good? We don't. You know, we've got a kind of perspective. But if you read the Bible, if you believe the story of Noah, which I really don't, but. God got so I do young God. Yeah. Right? Right. So we ain't there yet. So we aren't where? To the point where God said, Yeah, I got to go. You mean as he did for Noah? I'm not yeah. talking yeah. Yeah, he, as well. I mean, well he said also that he wouldn't do that again, you know, when um <laughs> when I read I mean I I've had to keep up on history as a as a literature teacher because I've always had to try to give a background. I don't know of a period in history in which human beings weren't enmeshed in hellish conditions, but I also know that some some periods and some cultures were better than others. You know that they were um, here. I mean, here's an interesting. When, when here, was that? What? When here, was that? here, the the High Middle Ages. Here, hold on. I'm saying that bad way, Carl. That's a that's a. And I'm not ignoring all the horror. Look at Dante. Half half no. Nine, the great majority of people in Dante's hell are Catholics. So he's not going to romanticize anything. I mean, we, we know that they're hell's full of popes too. But hold on. Um, in the medieval in the medieval towns, now we're not talking about the cities as we know them today. We're talking about an, a more agrarian world where people were closer to nature, closer to its rhythms, had to work. Drugs, alcohol didn't have the place there that they do now. If you go to those medieval towns and you start out from the perimeter at any point on a circle and follow the roads, they'll go to the middle of the town and what will be there? A tavern. A tavern? <laughs> Give me a piece of cake, somebody, please. That's, that's throwable. Tavern on one side, church on the other. At the center of every town would be a church. Yeah. Look at the perimeter of any city today and take any inroad and what will you find at the center of that city? Bank. A bank. <laughs> You'll find a business and or uh, some major corporation. Yeah, but, but also realize times were different. Sure. Because the only place of learning was the church. 
The only way you were educated is if you were in the church. Uh-huh. Well, that, On purpose. Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of other things that play. <laughs> I, I know, but the universities spring up there. By, by the way, we owe the un- universities were independent of the church then, um, and we owe the education to the churches that were behind the formation of those. And by the way, look at things here. Almost all of the universities in our country were established by religious orders several hundred years ago. All of them. Harvard, Yale, I mean, you, and go there and find out if there's anything, William Buckley's God and Man, he wrote that for his thesis, was was written to illustrate that all, most of those major universities have lost their missions. Was it God at Yale, Yale or something? Mm-hmm. God and Man at Yale, yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's, here, I want to get to the cantos, okay? I'm suggesting right now that what Dante's showing is the underworld of the commercial regime, that it's present. And remember that one of the great themes as we move through the Inferno is be careful of appearances. Garion has this good look, he has the face of a good-looking man. When we went to the Sodomites, they were all educated, they were all respectable. When we went to the usurers, they were all professional businessmen. So, oh, Franciscan Paola, when we first go into hell, she's a beautiful woman, articulate, sensitive. D- Dante passes out. I mean, what Dante is learning to do is see through appearances to the actual, what's going on in a human being. So he's, he's, he's asking us to learn to see more clearly what's right in front of us, the implications of things, the nature of things, to not be fooled so much. Okay. Um, Let's look at hell the um, fraud. <laughs> Valerie's been <laughs> aching. I know, aching to get here. I, I didn't want to say dying to get her because it's the implications of that are where we go. I didn't want you to die in hell. Leave you there. A couple of things to say before we go in there. One of the ways in which I think we can look at hell is as a Walpurgis night. As a what? The, well, the, the word Walpurgis comes from the German, I'm not German, but Walpurgisnacht. It means witch's night. It was a, a night that was set aside before the spring festival every year, which is the, where Easter was celebrated, when groups of people would come together to, to perform a black mass, basically. They would, um, they, would, they would have a black mass, celebrate a black mass. It was meant to, um, to thumb its nose at Christ and the mass. Um, it would be followed by orgies in which people would dress up as demons and there would be mating between humans and demons. It was just a very orgiastic sort of experience. Um, Goethe's Faust, um, one of the scenes inside that major play of, of uh, Goethe's was Walsperger's uh, Night. Um, Walpurgis Night, um, a witch's Sabbath. It's made up of a. Um, those of you who've read um, Nathaniel Hawthorne, if you've read Hawthorne, you know Young Goodman Brown. If you know that story, mm-hmm. Young Goodman Brown is a man of faith, and it, it's about it's again about a young man taking a journey into a forest and discovering that all of the respectable people that he knows in town are participating in this Black Sabbath. And when he sees that, he, he carries a ribbon. It's been so, so, so long since I've read that. I think he carries a ribbon of his wife, and he sees his wife there. 
and her band the bandage he, I think he carried with him floats off into space to symbolize the loss of his faith that that is his faith was based on appearances not on a real understanding of the evil inherent in man um, so this well Pergus Knight theme has been a constant theme and um, and and more so from the Renaissance forward when we've moved into the modern world so what we find in in particularly I mean all the way through hell but even more intensely as we get into the levels um, eight and nine into fraud souls in every imaginable kind of punishment immersed in excrement Dante has no qualms about saying um, they're, they're steeped in shit the, the foul smell of it he's, you know, when he goes through that um, that circle surrounded by and taking into themselves foul smells every form of torture, maiming, mutilation um, the practice of necromancy um, soul seem to die to merge into stuff and then reemerge as if they were um, brought back to life again the interesting thing about about um, um, levels eight and nine is that we see the, the worst forms of torture and maiming, losing an identity and having to come back, is that what we're watching is a constant state of decay. It's an ongoing state of disintegration, but they're in being. They are, right? But since they've turned from God, they, they can't escape being, taking their lives isn't gonna free them of it. They're just going to continually experience this maiming, this torturing, this losing of identity, and coming and having to come back again. Um, diseases, bodies decaying, disappearing, then reforming again in order to suffer punishments on the ongoing eternal basis, all from choice, choosing to have the sin, the disorder, instead of God. And remember, being cannot be annihilated. Once God creates something, it's in being. It may die. But its soul is eternal. So what we're seeing is people who cannot escape a condition, even if that condition is torture, maiming, um, a loss of an identity. So, and um, one last sort of quick allusion. Um, those of you who've seen The Fellowship, The Hobbit, the trilogies, mm -hmm. um, in The Hobbit series, not The Fellowship, but The Hobbit, I think it's the desolation of smog when Bilbo goes into that underworld and sees all that money. It's you know when I look at that, it's I'm not sure. I mean, I, I I'm not a reader and I, I haven't studied Tolkien that much, but I know the stories, um, but I I haven't studied them deeply. I can't watch those scenes without wondering whether Tolkien had on his mind what we're talking about here. That when you look into that underworld, what Smaug is, his hoard, this great hoard, it's all that wealth that's below the city that represents centuries and centuries of accumulated power. And that's what he, and, and Smaug is an image of the devil. It's, you know, the dragons have always been images of demons. So what Dante is showing us is an underworld city with that's present in the commercial city even if we don't see it. Now let me let me take um, a look at some of the cantos with you guys so we make this more concrete. 
here are the contrapassos, just very quickly, because I, I, I don't want to take time. With, I want to look at the characters. In level eight, which is fraud simple. Remember, the fraud being practiced here is simple because it doesn't involve a special trust. Level nine is fraud, it's called fraud complex because it does involve a betrayal of a special trust. Okay, that's the difference. So on the first level, panders and seducers, they're whipped by devils. They encouraged, exploited passions, so they're whipped along to keep passions moving. The flatterers are covered with filth, with excrement. Um, this is an expression of what they did. The simoniacs, upside down in holes. That's an image of an inverted baptism. And, and what you see are priests and popes turned upside down with their feet because they inverted, what their lives inverted the whole point of baptism, which was to be blessed in water and um, they're, be, they're being burned by a fire that, that is God's light being rejected. You remember that image? I think I've given it before. One of the reasons we see hell in terms of fire is because that's way, one of the ways of showing what happens to a soul when he rejects God's light. That light turns into a form of punishment, a flame. The soothsayers, their heads are twisted and looking backwards because um, they claim to have powers of seeing things that they did not. Um, the bearders are covered in boiling pitch. Um, it sticks to their fingers like the money that they tried to control. The hypocrites are wearing leaden mantles. They glow on the outside, but inside they're heavy. Thieves, um, I, I want to look at that because it's to me one of the most amazing sections in the whole of the um, Commedia. Um, because they stole things that weren't theirs, property is an extension of the human person. To take something that doesn't belong to you is to, is to take on an identity that's not yours. So in the level of things we see souls constantly being transformed into something that they're not. Evil counselors, they're con um, concealed in fire. Um, these are the ones that give false counsel. It's it's the it's the um, level in which it's the level in which we see um, Odysseus and Diomedes, and I want to look at that too. Sowers of discord um, are those that committed some form of heresy. They encourage people to believe something that wasn't true, um, and the falsifiers. And in in their under the in the level of the falsifiers are four different kinds of diseases. Leprosy, delirium, dropsy, high fevers. I mean, we're watching um, um, bodies decay um, and and continue in that state of decaying. Um, and I want to look at the at the at some of the figures. When we get the fraud complex, we're we're going to go into a, a part of hell in which people um, betrayed close ties, family or lords. And there are four sections. Um, <clears throat> Cana is named after Cain for killing his brother. So they're betrayers of kin. And at every one of these levels, people are um, caught in ice, not fire, ice, because it's an expression of something cold and impersonal that they, that they didn't have the affection that they should have had for somebody close to them. In the, in the level of Cana, named after Cain, the, the, 
the sinners are up to their neck in ice with their heads forward so they can re release any tears from any grief they have. Which to me is a little bit strange because I don't see people in hell having grief. But Antonora is named after Antonor of Troy. He was one of the ones who deceived the Trojans into letting the um, Greeks into the city. Um, the sinners there are up to their neck in ice. The Ptolemaea, named after Ptolemy, who was the captain of Jericho, um, he invited the sons of the high priest and the father into a banquet and killed them. So it's traitors to guests. The sinners are up to their necks and their heads are bent backwards so the tears can't release. They form into crust. In fact, one of the sinners is going to ask Dante to pick off the crust on his eyes so he can get some relief, and Dante doesn't. And then um, Judaica, named after Judas, um, has the sinners who were traitors to lords. Brutus, Cassius, um, Brutus, Cassius, and Judas. <coughs> Satan himself, obviously, because of his betrayal of Christ, or of God. What was the second one? <coughs> what? Uh, Sorry? Judea? No. Oh, oh. Antonora. Is that the one you're asking about? Yeah. So all of the souls in the lower levels are immersed in ice, caught, fixed in ice, not fire, not even Satan himself. And an interesting fact here, remember, Christ herod hell. Satan's are, this is really important, Satan's been defeated. We're going to see this in a minute when we get to the end of the... Satan's already been defeated. And what we're going to see is one of the sinners that Dante will meet towards the end is in hell, and he's a, a friar, he has orders. He's in hell, but his body is on earth, inhabited by a demon. So Dante makes it clear, be careful, particularly people in religious life, be careful, because people, in, people are walking around on earth um, inhabited by demonic souls. So, Dante doesn't romanticize anything at all. Okay, let's take a look at some of these concretely. Any questions about... Are you going to get to why the Buddhists and fascists? Yeah. Okay. Well, well Lang, that's a, because they betrayed Caesar, I and mean, that's the other... Yeah, but, what, but, yeah, but who was Caesar? Well, in the whole religious thing, exactly, who was Caesar? Well, how about, how about give unto Caesars what Caesars are... Oh, I, I know, but it just seems odd. Judas, I get, right? Right. But, you know, you would have thought it would have been, you know, the Pharisees. Or, I mean, I just, it was odd that you had two Greeks there who betrayed, or two Romans <coughs> who betrayed another Roman. That Not necessarily was, yeah. Betrayed everybody. Yeah, yeah, but, but I just thought that was odd that it being in a, in, in a Catholic world, you would say so. But you have two Rome. Uh, it just didn't make sense why those two were there. Let me try to make sense of this simply, and then I want to go on because we're going to come to it. And I know that'll if make any more sense then. No, 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 let me quick because you've asked a question. Christ said, "Given to Caesar's what Caesar, given to God what's God." He made a clear distinction, and this, you know, this is where we started when we started Milton when. We looked at the church fathers and the way they looked at the authority of the pope, the authority of the emperor. And all of the early Christian leaders were encouraged from the disciples and Paul himself to give obedience to lords because they were the lords of the temporal order. Now obviously that, that involves some problems, but it does in the religious order too because we're asked to give obedience and popes are, um, are everywhere in hell. So. But it, it, it shouldn't be strange in this sense that 
that there's always two orders that we're having to look to, the religious and the temporal, and there's an authority to each, a lord, a leader, a ruler, um, that we have to take seriously. Um, when Aristotle talks about deliberative justice, to, to work out a justice that's appropriate to the, the people involved, he, he's thinking about something like this. If you kill an ordinary man, kill, let's say you murder an ordinary man, you'll be accused of murder and sentenced appropriately. If you kill a president, that's a much more heinous crime because in some ways you're indirectly murdering, hurting a whole people. So the, the whole question of deliberative justice means you, you've got to look at the circumstances and the person involved in what's at issue. So there's, Dante's got very much in his mind that there are two orders here, the temporal and the, and the, the religious, and they're both to be taken seriously. The authorities are both to be taken seriously. But let me leave it there and, and come to it, it when we get there. Turn quickly to um, Canto um, 18. I think it's page 99. I'm not sure. Let me see. The 97 first. Remember, um, Garion transported Dante and Virgil down into fraud. We're entering the darkest part, what, what we can call this Walpurgis um, night, um, this nightmare world. And um, like the levels above, there are guardians of each level, but unlike the mythic guardians of the higher levels, the guardians here are demons. Because we're, we're going into um, spiritual disorders, orders that directly involve the intellect in a lie. So it's appropriate that angels, who are intellectual creatures, would be the guardians. These are the demons, the fallen demons. The first level is the panders and seducers. Um, at the bottom of 97, he sees Jason, who one of the stories of, of his exploits is that he um, seduced this woman and then left her. Um, so he's appropriately here. Turn to 99. I want to I look here because it's... It's, it's, it's got an interesting problem, at least as I see it here. Um, on page 98, now we could hear the shades in the next pouch, whimpering, making snorting, grunting sounds, and sounds of blows slapping with open palms. From a steaming stench below, the banks were coated with a slimy mold that stuck to them like glue, disgusting to behold and worse to smell. The bottom was so hollowed, hollowed out of sight we saw it only when we climbed the arch and looked down from the bridge's highest point. There we were, and from th where I stood, I saw souls in the um, dirt, the ditch, plunged into excrement that might well have been flushed from our lat from our latrines. My eyes were searching hard along the bottom, and I saw somebody's head so smirched with shit you could not tell if it were priest or layman. By the way, I've said this before. When we get to Ch um, Chaucer. Chaucer's going to have no qualms about using the word fart. Remember, I, I think I described this to you, that there's a, a monk. The, the priests really get it in Catholic literature all the time. It's a, I think it's a monk sitting against a wheel, and he passes gas. And Chaucer's making fun of the scholastics, St. Thomas, and because they tended to divide down and try to distinguish in order to get clear on things to unify them. 
Chaucer's making fun of that when the guy passes his gas because he describes it in terms of the gas being divided by all these. But he says, you know, they fart and describe. And another um, scene when somebody's sticking his rear end out of a window, it gets burned by a torch. I mean, those things are. There's, there's. We're so much more pure. The reason I'm saying that is we're so much more Puritan about our bodies after the 16th and 17th century. It wasn't. People were far more accepting of the bodies in a Catholic world 400 years ago than we are today. He shouted, why do you feast your eyes on me more than the other dirty beasts? And I replied, because remembering well, I've seen you with your hair dry once or twice. He identifies them, and then he looks down. He finished speaking, and my, ga- my, my guide began to lean out a little more and hard down there so you can get a good look at the face of that repulsive and disheveled tramp scratching herself with shitty fingernails, spreading her legs while squatting up and down. It is Theus, the whore, who gave this answer to her lover when he said, Am I very worthy of your thanks? Very, nay, incredibly so. She's there for flattery. Now, let me just be clear. She's a whore. Why is she not up with Francesca in the level of the lustful? Theus the whore who gave this answer to her lover when he asked, am I very, that is, am I a stud? Um, am I very worthy of your thank? Very, nay, incredibly so. You are a real stud. What's going on here? Why is she not up there? Why is she here? She's just yeah. encouraging him and his... Huh? She's just, you know, by, she's just... Encouraging this man in his pursuits. Huh? <laughs> in his pursuits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was tasteful. <laughs> I don't think I could have done she as well. She has no love. Whore is just doing, having sex for money. And, but she's lying. I think that, I mean, she's oh. flattering. This is the flatterers, right? She's she's encouraging him in a lie. Um, so the... I mean, the sex is not a thing here. It's not an issue. I mean, there's no love here in what's going on. But I think she's here instead of the lustful because what she's doing is lying to flatter. That is to keep this guy coming back. So that's what she's got here. Remember, fraud, The the all who enter have lost the good of the intellect. The people who are there have lost the good. That's been a principle from the beginning. The people in hell don't see themselves at all, at all. So fraud has been an element of everything that we've seen, but now it's becoming more explicit. The intellect is more directly involved in everything that goes on here. Um, he, he goes to the next level, the level of the simonist, um, um, and um, he sees Pope Nicholas there. Let me, before we go on, I, I think I asked this question, I'm not sure. The sin of simony is, um, is shown here. The sin of Beatry is down lower. The sin of simony sim, um, is the sin of selling church offices. Popes bought, priests bought offices and became popes. They were bought off. They bought into their offices. Beatry is selling legal powers. Um, so they're in some ways parallel. One's in the temporal order, one's in the church. Why would he put Beatry below Simony, when simony involves a higher betrayal because it's a betrayal of uh, church offices. And church is a higher authority than the temple order. 
Why would you think? The damage that could have been done? Say again. The damage that could have Explain been done. Explain that. Legally, you can affect all people through a law or uh, like a bad public servant or whatever, imposing laws or whatever. Um, but if it's a church office, there's only so much you can, granted it may be worse, but there's only so much that the church offices you can't affect everything. You can affect let's say let's say it involved a pope um, buying in. I mean, because the the office of the papacy was often um, passed on through family lines because of the power and wealth that they had. So if you became a pope, your power would be universal and would be over the whole church. Maybe because once they became the pope, they they did their pope. Things. No. Okay. No. <laughs> so, uh, the, the popes that are there are there because they didn't do that with theirs. Right. <laughs> Any thoughts on this? Just. Is it, is it because of the law? Just the concept of the law? Or you affect fewer people? You affect fewer people as the church as opposed to. The whole community. That's what Mark was saying a minute ago. Yeah. Yeah. Even those without, without outside. I have. I. I'd struggle with this because it's a serious. Dante knows what he's doing. He. He's not. He's not casual or cavalier about ordering things. He takes it very seriously. My guess on this is that um, Beatrice involved a, um, a stronger element of deception. That when people passed on church offices, it was public. It was more known. You um, couldn't. You could not know it. But baritry involves a level, a greater level of deceit, because as we get down lower, we're getting the, the level of deception, of lying, of falsifying something is greater and greater at every degree. Mm-hmm. So for me, the only the only thing that I can come up with is that. Otherwise, it makes no sense. That in simony, it would have been more out in the open. You could. You would know, you would have known when offices were bought off, but in Beartree you're you're more closed about it, more secretive. Um, I mean, why is thieves even below that? Say again. Why is thieves even below that? Wait, let's wait until we get. Okay, hold on. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> look at look at Page 119, they come to the level of the Bearders here. We're just talking about them. And we meet Ciampolo on page 119. Then I became servant to the household of good King Thebold. There I learned my graft, and now I pay my bill by boiling here. Now, in this pool of boiling glue, muck, the angels oversee them and beat them whip them when the souls try to come out of the muck for relief, okay? Um, Ciampolo, remember, who tricked people, that's the way he spent his life lying to get people to do what he wanted. <clears throat> he says to the one of the demons um, at the top of 122, if you'd like to see Tuscans or Lombards, the frightened shade took up where he left off, and have a talk with them, I'll bring them here. So he's enticing the devils and saying, if you, because um, they're going to punish him right now. They're going to whip him and then throw him back in. But he's saying, hold on, I'll get others for you so you will have more pleasure in whipping because the demons get pleasure in what they're doing. Oh 
but the mount branch must back up a bit or else those shades won't risk surfacing. Boy, is this guy cut. I mean, you can see this guy working in the world. I, by myself, would bring you up a catch of seven without moving from this spot, just by whistling. That's our signal to the rest when one peers out and sees the coast is clear. So if you guys will just back off a little bit, other people will come up. Now, you all know where this is going, right? Because you can see it coming, I hope. Saying, back off a little bit, I'll get these guys. They back off, and no sooner do they back, than he jumps back in to escape them. And watch what happens. In the meantime, this is 122, in the meantime, Galcabrina, furious, all took, all t also took off, hoping the shade would make it so he could pick a fight with his companions. Now, here's a shade, a demon, wanting the sinner to get away because he wants to quarrel with the other demon. When he saw that the grafter hit the pitch, he turned his claws to grapple with his brother, and they tangled in midair above the ditch. But the other was a full-fledged hawk as well and used his claws on him, and both of them went plunging straight into the boiling pot. So the two demons go into the muck, and the other demons have to come rescue them. It, it's a wonderful image of um, a kingdom divided against itself. Okay, um, it's it's not the only time that we see demons trying to pull off a deception. They do it a number of times with um, with Virgil, but here they're doing it with themselves and pay for it. Um, going over Canto twenty three one twenty seven. All of the sinners are moving with these leaden coats that are gilded, covered, gilded with gold on the outside, and they're heavy with lead inside. So they have to, because they, they were hypocritical, they presented a certain view to the world, but in, inwardly they were not that way at all. <coughs> at the top of 127. <coughs> That impaled figure you see there advised the Pharisees it was expedient to sacrifice one man for all the people. This is Caiaphas. Naked he lies stretched out across the road, as you can see, and he must feel the load of every weight that steps on him to cross. His father-in-law and the other council members who are the seed of evil for our Jews are racked the same way all along this ditch. <coughs> And I saw Virgil staring down, amazed at this body stretched out in crucifixion, so vilely punished in um, the eternal exile. Then he looked up and asked one of the friars, Could you please tell us, if your rule permits, is there a passageway on the right somewhere? Virgil's troubled right now because the demons just tricked him. They told him that the bridges were all down. He could have gone to another bridge and actually got up. But he was taking the word of the devils, and once again we see Virgil um, susceptible to evil. The, the reason isn't always adequate. Um, he answered, closer than you might expect, a ridge jutting out from the base of the great circle extends and bridges every hideous ditch, except this one whose arch is totally smashed and crosses nowhere, but you can climb up its massive rooms that slope against the bank. My guide stood there a while, his head bent low, and then said, he told a lie about this business, that one who hooks the sinners over there. Um, so what we're seeing is that um, Ciampolo, who was a grafter, a barrator who, who, who tricked people um, into 
taking, uh, giving him money so that he could sell public offices. Trick Virgil. So this guy who spent his life tricking other people tricks Virgil here, and Virgil's ashamed. It's, it's another irony that, that as good as reason is, and, and we know how great it is because of everything he does for Dante, it's always lacking something. And here, Virgil is too trusting um, when it shouldn't have been. In the next level, um, here, um, I think, that was it you, Mark, asked about thieves or, or Hi, Valerie? Yeah. yeah, please. Here, just take a look. Here. Um, <laughs> at the level of thieves, these snakes come up and bite a sinner, and a transformation takes place. And I want to look at two scenes here because they're, they're really sort of amazing. Top of 133, I love the bestial life more than human, like the bastard that I was. I'm Vanny Fucci, the beast. Pistola was my fitting den. I told my guide, tell him not to run away. Ask him what sin has driven him down here, for I know him as a man of bloody rage. So Dante's asking, why is he up there with the violent? The sinner heard and did not try to feign, directing straight at me his mind and face. He reddened with a look of ugly shame and said, that you have caught me by surprise here in this wretched bolgia makes me grieve more than the day I lost my other life. Now I'm forced to answer what you ask. I'm stuck far down here because of theft. I stole the treasury of the sacristy. He took things that were of holy things from within the church. He gives Dante a prophecy at the bottom of the page. It's one of many prophecies that have been building up of what's going to happen to Dante when he returns. <clears throat> because you remember, he's going to be exiled. And you all know that it's already happened. Dante, the exile has already taken place. Dante's writing from exile, but he's treating it as if it's prophetic because he knows it's going to happen. So he constantly leads to the sense that there's something prophetic to what he's doing, that people are telling him something that he doesn't quite understand. When he fit on page 134, beginning of. But before 20, you go on, so is the reason that theft is there is because it was falsely attributed to another? Say it again. The next sentence, you stopped, but if the crime falsely attributed to another, is that what puts it in this category? I stole the treasure, a crime falsely attributed to another. He was the one who stole it, not somebody else. Right. Correct, but he blamed it on somebody else. It doesn't say he blamed it, it says it was attributed. Yeah, it's just, he, in some ways, indirectly, he's claiming it, even though he's embarrassed to have to talk about it right now. That's what he did was steal. Okay, so I, I guess I don't see how that answers Valerie's question. Sorry, what, wait, we're getting there. Hold on. Wait, wait. 134. Um, 134. When he'd finished saying this, the thief shaped his fists into figs and raised them high and cried, Here, God, I've shaped them just for you. Then from then all those snakes became my friends, for one of them at once coiled round his neck. That is, Dante was pleased to see this guy's butt. What he's doing is... Um, um, giving the finger to God. I mean, to me, it's it, to me, it's one of the most repulsive gestures in the whole of the Commedia. God, I've, I've I've shaped them just for you. Here's going to um, Valerie's question. When he goes off, Dante sees a group of sinners come, and a snake um, comes up and um, does what the other, what the all the other snakes do on page 136. They attach them to a sinner and the sinner loses his identity and is transformed into somebody else. 136, the top. 
While I was watching them, all of a sudden a serpent, and it had six feet, shot up, hooked one of these wretches with all six. With the middle feet it hugged the sinner's stomach, and with the front ones grabbed him by the arms, and bit him first through one cheek, then the other. The serpent spread its hind feet round both thighs, then stuck its tail between the sinner's leg, and up against his back the tail slid up stiff. No ivy ever grew to any tree so tight and twined as the way that hideous beast had woven in and out its limbs with his. So they start to transform into each other, or two different creatures. The other two who watched began to shout, O Agne, if you could see how you are changing, you're not yourself and you're not both of you. He's not one or the other, he's neither. The two heads had already fused to one and features from each flowed and blended at one face where two were lost in one another. Two arms of each were four blurred strips of flesh and thighs with legs, then stomach, and the chest sprouted limbs that human eyes have never seen. Each former likeness now was blotted out, both and neither one it seemed, this picture of deformity, and then it sneaked off slowly. Just as a lizard darting from hedge to hedge under the stinging lash of the dog's day's heat zips across the road like a flash of lightning, so rushing towards the two remaining thieves, aiming at their guts, a little serpent fire with rage and black as peppercorn, shut up and sank its teeth into one of them. And then he watches the transformation here. Go down below. Um, For never did he interchange two beings face to face so that both forms were ready to exchange their substance, each one for the others. An interchange of perfect symmetry, the serpent split its tail into a fork, and the wounded sinner drew his feast together, the legs with both the thighs closed in to join, and in a short time fused, so that the juncture didn't show signs of ever having been there, the while the cloven tail assumed the features of the other one was losing, and its skin was growing soft, the others getting scaly. I saw his arms retreating to the armpits, and the reptile's two front feet that had been short began to stretch the length the man's had shortened. The beast's hind feet then twisted round each other and turned into the member man conceals while the wretch's member grew two legs. So that goes on. We watch this, tra- I mean it's amazing to watch these things merge into each other and become something else. So Valerie's question was why, say, say, say it again, ask it again. Why is these below all those other things that seem to be worse? Okay. In, can, having just experienced, watched Dante describe these sinners undergo these transformations, why would you say? Does the scene at all give an answer? So thieves are snakes. <laughs> no, the no? snakes are serpents. These serpents are forms of punishment that are instrumental in affecting these transformations. Involving all of these. Okay, so the thieves aren't serpents. They're just they had thieves serpents attacking them and making them into a being that we don't even facilitating this. Okay, think. I don't know. They steal their identity. Yeah, I mean Dante uses the word substance that they're not even if. Because there's different kinds of yeah. thieves. Yeah, yeah. So he's talking about con men. Well, the bearders, con, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I think of conmen as being with bearders because of what they do. But I think here, here's the issue, and this is not a small thing. Dante believed very seriously that, um, that our work was an extension of ourselves. It's who we are. 
God created the world. This thing that I began with um, some time ago. God is transcendent. He's in it. He's everywhere in things. If you're a writer and you produce something, you're in that thing. If some, that's why plagiarism is such a thing. Or um, what's the copyright laws? If you produce something and somebody steals it, they're in some sense taking you and making it themselves when it's not. So it's not a small thing for Donnie. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's another way of saying you're taking another person's self from him, his substance, his essence. That's, that's who he is. Um, people in the, I mean, we're, we very much protect um, individual rights in our country, but, but the Middle Ages, the Christian Middle Ages, would have taken it far more seriously because they thought property was an extension of a person. It was his. To steal that was to take, take something of that person, to take his substance, his being. So it's not just stealing, it's not just stealing or selling properties or church properties. It's actually taking the identity of a person, which is what we're watching here when. How about, how about stealing money? Well, that's true. Maybe they get cheap. They get cheap. I'm not sure what it is. They they get cheap horse thieves. <laughs> Go on over to evil counselors. I just want to very quickly here. Um, page 140. Um, this is where Dante sees evil counselors, Odysseus and Diomedes, because they're the ones who concocted the Trojan horse story that led to the oh, yeah. fall of Troy. Oh, yeah. But here's what I want to look. Turn over to 144. Down or uh, uh, Ulysses, as the Romans called him, is encouraging his men to go on this voyage because you know when Troy fell in the Odyssey, when Troy fell, Odysseus ha had to get home. Here's the Roman world calling Ulysses here. I and my mates were old and tired men. Then finally we reached the narrow neck where Hercules put up his signal pillars um, to warn men not to go beyond that point. On my right I saw... Now, he's already been warned not to go farther. Those, I'm sorry, those of you who've read the Aeneid will get this. I mean, those of you who've been here, remember, um, Virgil was very critical of Homer in the, in the Odyssey and the Iliad because you remember in Aeneas' voyages... Um, he comes across a man who, the story goes, Odysseus left behind. And there's nothing of that in Homer. If we read Homer, we, we, there's no sense that he lost anybody. It's Virgil's way of showing that the Greeks were irresponsible. Odysseus was irresponsible going into that cave, and he was irresponsible in leaving a man behind. If you talk about men going into battle today, the last thing that they want to be said of them is that they left somebody behind. That, that's so crucial. So Virgil was very critical of Homer because he thought the Greeks, in the Iliad, the Odyssey, he thought the Greeks were too individualistic. The Romans believed much more strongly in the common good, in everybody. The Greeks were too individualistic. The Romans had, had a greater sense of a, of a unity, some common value in everybody. That was, the, that was one of the fundamental differences between the Greek world and the Roman. Here, Ulysses is, is encouraging his men to keep going. They've come to the gates of um, Hercules, and there's a warning. That's a warning not to go beyond. On my right, I saw Seville and passed beyond. On my left, Kita had already sunk behind me. Brothers, I said, 
who threw 100,000 perils have made your way to reach the West during this so brief vigil of our senses that is still reserved for us. Do not deny yourself experience of what there is beyond. Behind the sun in the world they call unpeopled. Consider what you came from. You are Greeks. You were not born to live like mindless brutes, but follow paths of excellence and knowledge. Now stop before we go to the end, because the end will make it clear. Any giveaway here? Do you have any sense of where, given what Ulysses just said, what Dante's criticism is of him? And by the way, one of Tennyson's, one of the most famous poems of the 19th century was Tennyson's Ulysses. And in that poem, I, I should have brought it, in that poem Tennyson has Ulysses speaking, forward men keep going, um, follow your will out to the end of the, I mean something I can't, I should, I'll bring it next week and read a couple of passages from it. But Tennyson was writing off of this, these lines, except what he's doing with them is very different from what Dante is. Any hint of what, where Dante's going with this? Well, how about to begin with racial pride? You are Greeks. Don't let anything stop you. Consider what you came from. You're Greek. That is, the Greeks were known for their excellence, but I just, you know, just said this individual excellence. Achilles stood above his world. Odysseus stood above his world. Aeneas is giving his life to bring in this city that will be universal for all, not just Greeks, for everybody. It's called the universal city. That was the Aeneid. With his brief exhortation, I made my crew so anxious for the way that lay ahead that then I hardly could have held them back. And with our stern turn, they go on. Five times we saw the go down. Five times we saw the splendor of the moon grow full, and five times wane away again, since we had entered through the narrow pass. Then there appeared a mountain shape darkened by distance that arose to endless heights. I had never seen another mountain like it. Our celebration soon turned into grief. From the new land there rose a whirling wind that beat against the fore part of the ship and whirled us around three times, three times in churning waters. The fourth blast raised the stern up high and sent the bow down deep as pleased another's will. And then the sea closed again above us. Remember Moby Dick too when that coffin goes down. But um, What's going on here? They entered through the narrow pass. There appears this mountain. They whirl around three times. The, the last one takes them down. Um, the, the bow down deep, the, boat, the bow down deep as pleased another's will. Remember that phrase. Do you remember how the poem began? This is page four. You don't have to go there, but then only did terror start subsiding in my heart's lake, which rose to heights of fear that night I spent in deepest desperation. Remember, this is Dante trying to go up the mountain and being defeated by the beasts. Just as a swimmer, still with panting breath, now safe upon the shore out of the deep, might turn for one last look at the dangerous waters. So I, although my mind was turned to flee, turned round to gaze once more upon that past that never let a living soul escape. Dante wants to go up that mountain, push back, and he describes it in terms of this narrow pass that nobody has ever gotten through. Now Ulysses has already been, he's telling his men, don't let 
Don't let these warnings keep you back. Keep going ahead. Um, and then this happens to him. Mm. Yeah. What mountain is this that he's looking at? Yeah, yeah, probably both. Mark, can you flesh that out at all? What's going on here? I don't think Ulysses knows it's purgatory, but it's it's a mountain past where you should not go, and because he is not allowed to get there, he gets sucked down into hell. Or can't go without God's help. Yeah, well, not allowed, can't, whatever. And then I didn't put the two together until you just read the very beginning, with you past the two towers and in the very first on page four there in Canto One, but now that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. It it's a man and this is this is Dante's following Virgil in the Aeneid, who is critical of the Greeks. Because what defined the Greeks was a sense of no limits. That they did not accept their limits, and the cost of that was great for other people. If you read the Aeneid, you see that Virgil, that Aeneas is constantly aware of his men. He, he doesn't want to leave anybody behind. He's, he's not looking out for his own excellence. He's not trying to be better than somebody else. Achilles, Odysseus. His whole purpose is, remember those of you who have done it, his whole purpose is to bring in this a universal city. It's the city in which all men can get along, not just the Greeks. What's Ulysses doing here? Remember that you are Greeks. You were not born to live like mindless groups to follow path. You were, but to follow path. That is what he's trying to do right now is um, go beyond his limits. He's refusing to acknowledge his limits as a human being. And I think the mountain is important because in one sense it, it represents that degree of excellence, completeness, that man cannot achieve without God. That's why Virgil was sent to Dante when he, you remember when he's pushed down from the mountain? He said, you have to go down first. Is there any sense in which U Ulysses here has ever gone down? He's down there now forever, but that is, he's not learned to face those things. He's not learned what his limits are. Um, so this is one of these scenes in which we're looking at something through Virgil's eyes and Dante's and also looking back at the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid, all of them. Dante's bringing them all into play here. Um, quickly, I'm going to go, we're not going to get to the, uh, next week we'll finish the, next week, read the first eight cantos of the Purgatorio, because I'll finish um, Inferno directly. I just want to look at a couple of things with you and start. But before we leave, I want, I want to look at one scene here. Um... The Ugolino. There's a couple of scenes I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to next week when we get there because they're just too important. But I'm I'm gonna leave. Page one eighty. Dante is coming close to the end of his journey here, and he comes across this bishop um, and a count, top of 180. Um, First you should know I was Count Ugolino, and my neighbor here, Ruggieri, the archbishop, 
Now I'll tell you why I'm so unneighborly because Ugolino is gnawing. He's eating um, Rogerio. His head is presented so eternally. He's feasting on him. He's eating him. That's the pun. And and look, remember the pairs we saw: Francisca, Paola, Diomedes, Ulysses. Um, somebody I'm forgetting, but here Rogerio. Remember that in hell, people don't love each other. The way they use people in the world plays out here. So here people are objects to each other to carry out whatever it is they desire. Here it's Ugolino feasting on this bishop. Um, you, you, um, Rogerio betrayed Ugolino and sent him into the prison. And there's this horrible scene. And remember, this I, I believe this is the climactic scene of, of hell. And I, um, if I don't make it clear tonight, I will next week. He's put into the tower with his nephews, and this is what happens. I had watched moon after moon after moon go by, when finally I dreamed the evil dream which ripped away the veil that hid my future. I dreamed of this one here as lord and huntsman, pursuing the wolf and the wolf cubs up the mountains. So the bishop was pursuing them. Um, with skinny bitches, well-trained and obedient, he had out in front as leaders of the pack these Figures. A short run and the father with his son seemed to grow tired, and then I thought I saw long fangs seep deep into their sides, ripped open. When I awoke before the light at dawn, I heard my children sobbing in their sleep. You see, they too were there, asking for bread. If the thought of what my heart was telling me does not fill you with grief, how cruel you are. If you are not weeping now, do you ever weep? Dante apparently is not, which in, in sense is a measure of his growing maturity. And then they awoke. It was around the time they usually brought our food to us, but now each one of us is full of dread from dreaming. Then from below I heard them driving nails into the dreaded, the dreadful tower's door. With that I stared in silence at my flesh and blood. Obviously they're not going to bring him food anymore. They're nailing him in. He's going to die there. I did not weep. I turned to stone inside. They wept and my little um, Alcelmuccio spoke, What is it, Father? Why do you look that way? For them I held my tears back, saying nothing, all of that day and then all of the night, until another sun shone in the world. A meager ray of sunlight found its way to the misery of our cell, and I could see myself reflected four times in their faces. They're all looking, at, they're all looking to him, really. I bit my hands in anguish, and my children with who thought that hunger made me bite my hands, were quick to draw up closer to me, say, Oh, Father, you would make us suffer less if you would feed on us. You were the one who gave us this sad flesh. You take it. They're offering themselves as food for him to live. I calm myself to make them less unhappy. That day we sat in silence, and the next day, O oh, pitiless earth, you should have swallowed us. The fourth day came, and it was on that day my Galdo fell prostrate before my feet, crying, Why don't you help me? Why, my father? There he died, just as you see me here. I said, The other three fall one by one as the fifth day and the sixth day passed. And I, by then, gone blind, groped over their dead bodies. Though they were dead two days, I called their names, he keeps crying out. Then hunger proved more powerful than grief. What happens then? Hmm? Are you asking a question? I'm asking a question. Yeah, I, I, I'm confused here. That's what he's doing. Yeah. Cannibal. I think he 
he's eating them. Yeah. Then hunger proved more. Now, just to, to I'm going to close because we're going to stop. I'm read the next. Well, I know I'm not done, but next week read the first eight cantos of the Purgatorio. We'll start. I'm going to come back to this, but let me just stop with this. Um, I want to go back and pick up a couple of really important things. This, this I believe, is the climax of hell. When we get to Satan in the next cantos, what we see is almost going to be comic compared to this. I'm asking this really seriously now, really comic. It's almost um, laughable. This is not. I think this is one of the most, probably the most gruesome. If you, you know, we've been parodying things. We've been they're awful to look at the the, the smell of increment or uh, excrement and you know twisted bodies and main bodies and all of that. This is the most dramatic scene of the whole of the inferno. It's a man eating actually his nephews, his children, um, when they had already offered themselves to him. So it, it raises our tenderness. We feel pity for this man. And we're sorry that it happens this way, but this is the way. And it goes on to Satan, who is eating. So um, why does Dante um, give such dramatic force to this canto and then treat almost comically the canto in which we, Satan is described eating Judas, Cassius, and Brutus? What's Dante doing here? Let's let's leave it for next week. But I, I, we're just going to take a short time to finish up the um, the Inferno, and we'll start the Purgatory. But there's still some things I want to look at here. I want to go back to some people we um, we, we didn't look at. Alberigio, just a few cantos earlier, is a is a priest again. He's a friar who's in hell while his body is on earth, occupied by a demon. So Dante's doing some really gruesome stuff as we get to the end of the inferno here so I want to take a few more minutes with that okay why did he why did he give such dramatic force to this Ugolino episode just before we see Satan what's he doing okay. we'll pick up here next week huh he was a political figure just involved in politics. So he was an evil They were all embroiled in politics. I, I, I don't remember the details right now, Mary, but... Um, and the, the bishop betrayed him.